Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be discussing Indonesia's food sector and specifically the notion of food sovereignty, which has gained increasing prominence in domestic policy discussions within Indonesia, along with rising nationalism more broadly in the country. Rejoining us on the podcast to discuss this issue is Dr. Jeff Nielsen, Senior Lecturer in Geography at the University of Sydney and Indonesian Coordinator of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Jeff is the co-author of a recent paper on food sovereignty in Indonesia and will have a chapter published on this topic in 2018 as part of the book from this year's ANU Indonesia Update Conference. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, could I start by asking you, we increasingly hear this term food sovereignty in Indonesian discourse. What in fact does it mean and why is it such a priority for the Indonesian government at present? Yeah, that's right. Um, I guess even more specifically, we hear the Indonesian term kedaulatan pangan, um, which is often translated, you're correct, as food sovereignty. Although um, I might try to explain in a little while that this term also has particular resonances, I think, in Indonesia and departs somewhat from the equivalent terms used elsewhere. Now, I guess in its current political usage in Indonesia, the term is strongly associated with this idea that the production of particular food commodities within Indonesia exceeds consumption. So essentially, it's associated with this idea of national level self-sufficiency in foodstuffs. And it also suggests that the, the ability of the Indonesian state, the government, to determine independent policies free from any foreign influence. And as to why it's important, I guess the, the, the short answer is that the dominant political discourse in Indonesia asserts that this self-sufficiency is required to ensure that the nation, and that this is strongly personified in the Indonesian term for the nation, the bangsa, is somehow fed. And so any government seemed not to be paying adequate attention to the national level self-sufficiency in food risks being accused of neglecting the health of the nation or the bangsa. You've mentioned there's a strong political element to that, but this focus on feeding the nation, the bunks are, I mean, does this come about also from some very genuine food security challenges that Indonesia faces? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, I mean, the, the, the World Food Program estimates that there's some 30 million undernourished people in Indonesia, which is, which is more than any other Southeast Asian country. And indeed, rates of stunting, which is a key indicator of malnutrition, are as high as 37% in Indonesia, which is second only to Laos and Southeast Asia. And indeed, acute malnutrition is higher in Indonesia than it is anywhere else. So th th there are serious challenges in Indonesia. And, and while rates of malnutrition are, are closely correlated to poverty, in Indonesia, there's something of an exception there where malnutrition has remained stubbornly high in Indonesia, despite improvements in other indicators such as poverty alleviation. So it's, okay, it's something of an outlier in terms of malnutrition rates against the average rates of per capita GDP. So, I mean, this is a very serious problem in Indonesia that the, that the government is dealing with then. Absolutely. That's right. And, and also, I mean, food vulnerability also varies across the country as well. I mean, Something like 52 of the 58 districts identified as being highly vulnerable to food shortages are located in the east, in Papua, Maluku and Nusa Tenggara. So there's a strong geographical variable, I guess, to understanding food vulnerability. You've mentioned just before that food sovereignty has quite a distinct meaning in Indonesia compared to what it would mean internationally. Could you talk us through what that difference is and, and how it's developed? 
the term food sovereignty is still, I guess, broadly debated internationally. So I don't don't want to give the impression that there's any sort of recognised definition of what the term means. It's sort of almost inherently ambiguous, right? But it is very closely associated with the international peasant movement, La Via Campesina, where it reflects a, a really strong, I guess, peasant rights movement and, and presents an alternative vision of, of small-scale agriculture. It's also set up in contrast to a, a dominant food regime, is the term, and sort of sees a, a future food system that's somehow divorced from the corrupting influences of agri-food capital. So that's, it's sort of come out of this this strong activist background and and that has meant that the relationship between the food sovereignty movement, at least as seen through La Via Campesina, and the state or state structures is intensely debated. And sometimes, in fact, it's seen in opposition to the state. You look in, in Brazil, for example, and the, the landless workers movement, the MST there, which promotes these highly autonomous, anti-state, even an- anarchic communities that are celebrated. So that, that's, I guess you'd say, the dominant international rhetoric. Whereas in Indonesia, this contrasts with a strong state-based understanding of, of kadalatan pangan, or of food sovereignty, which I think has emerged as a product of the particular nationalist struggles in Indonesia and, and can be traced back to Sukarnoist rhetoric about the need to sort of to feed the bangsa, to feed the nation. In reading some of your research, that's one of the things that I found really fascinating was this persistent influence that you highlight of the founding president Sukarno's ideas about food sovereignty. I guess that's fascinating to me because my understanding is his policies at the time were something of a disaster in terms of bringing about food security for Indonesia. Um, Could you talk us through how he understood this concept and why his understanding has persisted for so long? Well, I guess firstly, Sukarno, as far as I know, never used the term kadaulatan pangan or food sovereignty, although he certainly used the term kadaulatan, the term for sovereignty itself. But he was primarily interested in achieving what he called bodhikari, you know, to stand on one's own two feet economically and promoted self-sufficiency in rice and various other commodities. And and you're right, that that then resulted in and was also associated with various, I guess, fairly poorly thought through economic policies. And, and by the end of the Sakano era, Indonesia did experience sort of severe famine due at least in part to poor economic policy, although it's also known that in 1963 there was the eruption of Gunung Agung, which had devastating effects on agricultural production throughout the country. And of course, as we're speaking now, in what is it, September 2017, Gunung Agung is also showing signs of a, another imminent eruption. And I guess it's just a, yeah, a reminder that you know, major natural disasters also have been inevitable in Indonesia and they've influenced food systems previously. And so Sukarno's policies was also attributable to, to that as well. But in terms of why does it continue to have such resonance, um, I guess Sukarno's strong personification of the bangsa, of the nation, and, and suggesting that the bangsa was able to feel hunger or to die he then associated that with the state. And so all, all this emerged during the revolutionary period with this strong, undying commitment to nationalism. So why is it still resonant now? I think we're seeing a resurgent nationalism in Indonesia, as we are elsewhere. And I guess this provides a re-emergence of Sukarno's thinking and rhetoric and as applied to food. Okay. And by the same token, the, the kind of international peasant movement that you highlight as being tied to food sovereignty internationally hasn't resonated within Indonesia to the same extent? Oh, look, that's right. It had not to the same extent, although for many years, actually, the global leadership of La Via Campesina was, under Henry Saragi had its secretariat in Indonesia. And there has been a particular stream within the agrarian reform movement in Indonesia 
that has, so I guess, promoted an anti-state bias. You see it in, in certain occurrences of land occupations across the country. So, so it does exist. But I, I guess the context there, of course, is that any genuine peasant movements were, were violently suppressed during the communist purges of the 60s. And, and they do continue to be marginalised politically and socially today as a result. So, so that's meant there's never really been a strong anti-statist peasant or movement within the country. And I mean, of course, the regime that emerged out of that suppression in the 60s was the Suharto regime. Did Suharto himself have dramatically different understandings of food security, food self-sufficiency, food sovereignty to what Sukarno had had? I wouldn't say, I mean, in terms of the underlying political discourse, I think my point is that there is actually a continuity, although the policies change. I guess Suharto had this strong commitment to rice self-sufficiency. And his regime did momentarily attain that in the mid-1980s. But I guess that political goal was also tempered with a more practical approach to policy. So I guess, if, if anything, this goal has continued to become even more important in the current democratic era. Could you explain what some of the policies are that different Indonesian governments have enacted in pursuit of this persistent goal of food sovereignty? Import policy would be is the most obvious one. So obviously various trade restrictions on the import of basic foodstuffs into the countries, either outright bans or, or licensing to various importers who are allowed to import the products. That, that's a key one. The next and interesting one is the development of, of so-called food estates, which has an interesting lineage that also goes back to the Zahato era with his massive you know, million hectare food estate in Kalimantan, which established in the 1990s. And then that sort of, that idea of we can feed the country, we can get self-sufficient through these massive large-scale estates has then continued to have some sort of resonance, both under SBY, he promoted a similar-scale estate in Marokke, in Papua, and that has also continued on now through, through Jokowi. So things like these import restrictions and the large-scale food estates, have those, I guess the food estates in particular, also been state-led enterprises, or is that something more turned over to the private sector to pursue? Well, the, the Sahara era mega rice project in, in Kalimantan was very much a state-led project linked up with a transmigration of, of smallholders from Java and Bali moving to Kalimantan. However, the more recent SBY era food estate project in, in Morocco, in Papua, um, has tried to enrol various companies to be the key actors in, in driving production. Now, in both cases, what you've really seen is the shifting of ownership and access to resources to either transmigrants in the Kalimantan case and eventually actually to, to large palm oil plantations and then more directly so in the case of the Morocco estate in Papua, whereby a number of companies have been issued land leases to, to produce food. Okay, shifting from, sorry, uh, local ownership or state ownership into, into private hands, you're saying that? So in, in both cases, I guess the food estates have been strongly state-driven in the sense that the political rhetoric that justified the Morocco estate in Papua was underpinned by this the logic of state intervention. But then in practice, there's been the involvement of, of companies in actually doing the production on the ground. Okay, and is that a rent-seeking dynamic or is, is that purely out of, out of efficiency or, or what drives that? Yeah, well, when... When we look at the, the results of the earlier food estate in Kalimantan and what's actually happened there, and what, if we go back there now, what we see is a lot of cleared land, the, a once viable wood chip industry, and then evolving into a number of palm oil estates, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that, in fact, the, the underlying, the, the real motivating factor is 
the allocation of leases to to people close to the regime and and i guess when you look at what's occurred also in in papua we also see a number of companies with close links to the regime in jakarta are the ones who are getting access to land so uh, i i mean there are great profits then being made by private interests out of this state-led policy that certainly appears to be the case That goes back to this interesting point you've made earlier about the real emphasis on the state within Indonesian food security or food sovereignty policy. And I mean, in your research, you highlight that the 2012 food law passed by the UDONO government in particular apportions a very central, I think you said a pivotal role to the state in all aspects of food policy. Is this something that is I guess the role of the state in Indonesia is anomalously large by international terms, or, or are there other countries where it would be similarly heavily involved in the in the food sector? Well, it's certainly anomalous compared to, to Australia, for example, where, where the state is largely absent from agriculture, from trade regulation, and, in, and from food distribution. You know, in Australia, we're highly dependent on market forces to distribute food. Access at the household level is sort of maintained through various income supports in our social security system. So... It's anomalous compared to Australia, although other countries, and I guess India comes to mind, has a very involved and active state in a, in a public distribution system, whereby the state also maintains a, a multitude of, of various retail stores across the country. So it's not, I guess Indonesia in some ways sits in the middle. Um, I guess what I'll emphasise, however, is that even though the law sort of apportions this strong role to the state, the capacity actually of the state to meaningfully intervene is actually far more limited than the law suggests. So... I guess another thing I find interesting is you've highlighted in your earlier answers this real focus on feeding the nation, the bangsa in Indonesia, as kind of a, I guess, a unitary whole. Whereas, as far as I understand from your research, a lot of the food sovereignty movements internationally are more focused on the individual or communities. Could you explain how has that distinction developed in Indonesia and do we see counter-movements who would shift the focus I guess, more locally to smaller units within the nation? I think in answering that, I should, I guess, highlight that there are these contrasting or conflicting discourse internationally as well between what we call food security and food sovereignty. So in the 1980s, the dominant way of thinking through food security changed quite significantly. You had the work of the Indian economist Amartya Sen, who sort of highlighted that, in fact, starvation, you know, what does he say, is the characteristic of some people not having enough to eat. It's not the characteristic of there being not enough food to eat. This means that he saw famines occurring in in Sahel, in Bangladesh and elsewhere, not because there wasn't food available, but because individuals, households weren't able to access that food. So this led to sort of a a fairly significant shift away from what we might refer to as food availability versus food access. And that has sort of been the, the dominant definitions now that FAO uses. They talk about food availability, food access, food utilisation, nutrition, and then the stability of these over time. So this has sort of meant that for some, this has meant that the, the role for the nation state as an intermediary in the food system was considered to be less relevant, that it was just really a matter of allowing perhaps market forces to dictate prices of food, that we should be thinking about free flow of food across borders to allow those that need it to have access to it, but also that poverty alleviation is the key to allowing individuals to have access to that food on offer. So that's the, the shift in the understanding of food security. That's right. And then you, you were contrasting that against food sovereignty. That's right. So, so food sovereignty in some ways 
is then uh, our reaction against this ideal of a liberalised global food system. And it sort of it starts, starts reasserting that it actually matters not just that people have access to food, but it's important also where that food comes from. And that's where the food, international food sovereignty movement in particular looks at, well, we want food to come from peasant producers, from certain viable rural communities. And so it's that idea of thinking about the origin of food as opposed to just coming for, perhaps from global agri-food systems. Okay, whereas in Indonesia, there's not such a focus on peasant production in the concept of food sovereignty. The main thing is the food is produced within Indonesia regardless of who produces it. Is that right? Well, I guess, yeah, the contrast is, is most uh, obvious, I guess, when, when you think about these, these large-scale food estates, you know, a million hectares of land to be where the state is supporting large food corporations to come in and produce their food is, you know, the, the, the exact opposite to what food sovereignty advocates through organisations like La Via Campesina um, see. It's got nothing to do with peasant rights in, in that sense. It's all about just large-scale capitalist food production. In your research, I mean, you've really highlighted how this 2012 food law and the overall discourse of food sovereignty and food security in Indonesia has focused on Indonesia as sort of one collective whole. But on the other hand, I mean, at the outset of the podcast, you've described how problems of malnutrition and stunting uh, are still a major problem for Indonesia and how malnutrition is in fact geographically focused in particular parts of the country. Why don't we or do we in fact see those Indonesians who are not doing well out of the current food sovereignty approach and its focus on the nation as a collective whole pushing for a different understanding or a, or a different approach? And I think there's a number of levels, perhaps, to trying to answer that, I think, because obviously it's a complicated area. But at the one level, of course, you have this desire to have food self-sufficiency at all costs, which then leads to import restrictions, which then leads to higher prices for food in Indonesia, which then means that the poor, who mainly buy their own food, um, have le less access to food. So at that individual le level, you have, a, as a result of self-sufficiency policies through trade policy, resulting to increased food insecurity. At another level, you have, in the interest of the nation, of the Bangsa, you have the imposition of these food estates, which paradoxically can actually lead to reduced food security in those cases where the food estates are built on land, obviously, and, and involve the dispossession of previous communities there. So it seems to me that the, the overarching reason why there isn't greater resistance to that is really this the, the all-pervasive rhetoric of, of food sovereignty now, which is makes it virtually impossible for individuals or regions to, to challenge. It's, sort of, it's almost akin to challenging the desire to keep the state and the nation alive, um, even though those policies might be having negative consequences for, for individuals and communities. Okay, so I mean within Indonesia we wouldn't see particular regions or particular groupings of academics pushing for an end to, say, import restrictions or to these, these, this approach of food estates? I think it'd be a bit, bit much to say it doesn't exist. I mean, certainly um, a number of economists have made the tried to make the, the case quite clearly that there are at least serious short-term negative consequences from import restrictions. Um, however, I'd say they haven't really been successful in engaging the political debate. And then at the, the household level or the resistance, what you might consider the resistance from agrarian movements that are promoting perhaps a food sovereignty-based peasant rights approach, it's really the, the political marginalisation of these groups within the country that's made that problematic. That is an interesting point you bring up there where uh, sort of even if these discourses exist 
academically, they haven't really made it into the political sphere. But on the other hand, I guess you're describing a situation where, you know, you'd have to say the government has some pretty severe failings in its food sector policy. If you do have this persistent malnutrition, uh, you mentioned how import restrictions create problems with the poor's access to food. Um, you've got sort of different levels of, of malnutrition in different parts of the country. Why hasn't that been costly politically for the government? Okay, so the short answer is to why it's been it's politically expedient to afford or guess, lower priority to these nutritional outcomes, etc., is that the dominant rhetoric has successfully diverted blame, you know, for higher food prices on some somewhat nebulously defined import mafia, and or blame individuals, mothers, for example, for poor nutritional decisions. So they've managed to shift the, I guess, the the broad contours of the debate away from those individual impacts. That to me is really fascinating and I mean fascinating to hear you describe sort of this food sovereignty feeding the, the nation discourse as essentially all pervasive because I mean the interesting thing if we casually flick through Indonesian newspapers at the moment is it feels like there's a debate raging on the opinion pieces of say the nation's largest newspaper paper, Compass about rice and, and rice pricing. Um, could you talk us through what the contours of that debate are and, and how they link back to, to these ideas of food sovereignty, food self-sufficiency, food security that you've been describing. A month or so ago, the, the government introduced this, effectively a ceiling price for rice at the retail level. Now, the debates there are, it does require a little bit of contextual backtracking to make sense of. You go back to the 2014 election, presidential elections, when Jokowi faced off against Prabowo. And Prabowo, of course, had been the head of a national-level farmers' organisation, a, a Saharto-era farmer organisation, but still he had fairly strong pro-farmer credentials. And they both campaigned on this platform of food sovereignty, nationalist commitment to food self-sufficiency. And so that then locked Jokowi in to this commitment to national-level self-sufficiency. And I think made him, to be able to front up the next elections, he also needs to be able to claim success on that front. So that then led to, even though previous regimes had also had a sensible commitment to self-sufficiency, Jokowi really increased the level of public investment in subsidised fertilisers, in irrigation, in seeds. And even though a number of studies, such as those by the World Bank, have suggested that that massively increased investment has not had a commensurate increase in productivity, but they do appear to have had at least some effect on production. And the government is now claiming this year, 2017, to be self-sufficient in rice and to have drastically reduced imports of corn, such that you know, imports of rice are not required and that no new licences have been issued. Now, all of this then leads to limitations of supply, causing this upward pressure on prices, which might be due to actual shortages in the market, or they might be due to traders speculating and withholding stocks to sort of manufacture scarcity. But either way, upward rice prices causes a new political problem for the government, which then leads to a new round of implementation, such as interventions in prices, price ceilings. And this year, we saw, I guess, some major evidence in, in, in July, I think it was, when we saw police actually raiding warehouses of uh, one of Indonesia's largest private rice buyers, a subsidiary of Tiga Pilar, Sajatra, um, known as Ibu. And at the time, the, the reports were from politicians and media outlets that uh, this, this company had been selling subsidised rice and repackaging it. And it, it turns out they were actually using subsidised fertilisers like all farmers were. But it, it appeared that the, the government was somehow intervening to stop this company from buying directly 
from farmers, which is what it had been doing. And so by buying directly from farmers, it was actually making life difficult for Bullog to procure rice. Bullog is the National Logistics Agency, a state-owned enterprise. Which it needs for its Rice for the Poor program and to ensure buffer stock. So it seems there's, there's a link here between the government willing, wanting to intervene in rice trade to ensure that Bullog has access to, to rice, but also to ensure that we keep a lid on prices. And so this ceiling price, the issuing of a ceiling price, is attempting to keep that in check. What are some of the positions that are being staked out in the debate at present? Well, companies such as Tigapilla Sajatra are arguing really that greater private sector investment would actually lead to improved services farmers. These companies often also provide seeds and agri- agronomic advice to, to farmers as well that in some cases is superior to the public extension system. That also by buying directly from farmers, you may actually be able to get higher prices than that offered through what they consider to be Bullog's inefficient purchasing and warehousing system, which because they're the, the costs of that, so the argument goes, eventually get borne through lower prices at the farm gate. Um, the, the government, of course, is saying, well, we think that production this year exceeds demand, and so therefore increase in prices is due entirely to speculators and therefore we need to be tough on speculators and so and this does seem to have some sort of resonance with the public i guess that sort of to be seeing to be tough on a trading mafia or the rice mafia certainly seems to encourage public support i guess in my recollection that almost seems to date back to the fall of the authoritarian regime and the the kind of food riots you had in the in the year preceding that and the idea that people were stockpiling resources, is that something that actually traces back even further in Indonesian political discourse, this idea of of speculating and stockpiling? I guess the irony is that if you restrict imports, um, then you're actually providing the opportunities for stockpiling. So if you had a sort of, I guess, a a free market in rice, for example, then that would mean there'd be no point stockpiling because people would just undercut you. But sort of by, by placing these restrictions, by pl- and, and rice prices in Indonesia at the moment are, are double what they are in many other Southeast Asian countries, which is, which is incredible. And so this huge difference between international prices and domestic prices is actually what creates the conditions for an import mafia to benefit. Um, and yet that's not necessarily the way it's presented. Is the situation you're describing one where it's almost implausible to think about a scenario where the government would move away from these food sector policies based on notions of self-sufficiency and sovereignty? Is that essentially looks like a permanent feature of the landscape in food policy in Indonesia? I think it is for the moment, to be honest. I, th- I think that at the moment the, the association is such that I, I can't imagine, I guess, a hypothetical situation of, of President Jokowi facing re-election against Prabowo on a policy of an open trade regime. I can't see that being the case. Whether whether it's possible to sort of prevent some of the excesses of, of the large-scale food estates, and I, and I should say there is probably more criticism around of those estates and the consequences of them within Indonesia that could con- contribute to sort of a change in policy in that regard. But I, I think a politician saying they're willing to open the import floodgates, as the term goes, for rice would be probably politically very risky. Is there some sort of middle ground that might be politically possible that you'd advocate Indonesia moving towards? Well, I mean, of course, presenting food self-sufficiency at at this national level and equating it particularly with rice and certain other commodities doesn't do anything to address the concerns of malnutrition. I mean, most analyses of Indonesian diets highlight this over-dependence on carbohydrates and over-dependence on rice. And then, of course, national production of rice does nothing to address that. So I think certainly a policy reorientation towards 
fresh fruit and vegetables on the one hand and, and I guess protein sources, especially soy and fisheries on the other, which is the most important source of protein for, for Indonesia's poor, would, would be welcome. And I guess it's probably the case that public awareness campaigns are also needed to address the, these nu- nutritional challenges. I mean, I, I don't think the Indonesia should be abandoning agricultural policy, although I think it should be probably developed with a much keener eye on the actually what I call livelihood strategies of the poor and protecting the, the livelihood assets of Indonesia's rural poor, which often means access to land, access to marine resources, for example. Are those sorts of policy focuses uh, similarly absent in the way that the possibility of opening restrictions on, on rice imports are from Indonesian political discourse? Well, not necessarily. If we take access to marine resources, for example, the last few years, Indonesia has, of course, been making a lot of progress in addressing depletion of fish stocks by illegal foreign vessels um, and perhaps sort of equal attention to ensuring marine conservation and protecting that resource for use or, or perhaps somehow quarantining it for use by the poor um, is probably not politically unimaginable. Finally, I mean, you've set out that moving away from this idea of food sovereignty, food self-sufficiency is implausible. But within the restrictions of that approach, is there scope for the Indonesian government to make progress on some of the food security challenges you've outlined of malnutrition, of the poor's access to food, and of the inequalities between different parts of the country in in terms of food security? In in terms of access to food, I think that's an area where there has been a lot of change in Indonesia. I mean, the Ruskin Rice for the Poor program, which, which was actually instituted as part of the IMF reforms back in in 1998. Um, And that was all about sort of taking away the massive subsidies on fuel, etc., but then improving access to food for the poor. And then since then, there's there's been a number of programs, I guess, of of income support programs, conditional cash payments to individuals, which really improves the ability of poor households to to buy food, is, I think, a a move in the right direction to improving food access. I think that's been the, 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 the big movement on that front. In terms of addressing regional disparities, I think the, the key driver of regional disparities is, is poor infrastructure and indeed higher levels of poverty in those areas, which, which are also being addressed through infrastructure development projects. So you're casting food sovereignty as in many ways counterproductive, but still potential for Indonesia to improve its performance on those underlying food security challenges then? That's right. I, I guess my key point is that the overwhelming emphasis and the equating of food sovereignty with food self-sufficiency as the primary goal is not going to solve the the sorts of challenges we see at the individual and community or or regional level. And so therefore we need a a more more expansive understanding of, of food security and food sovereignty. Jeff, there's so much more I could ask you about, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing your insights with us today. It's been fascinating. Thanks for having me along, Dave. That was Dr. Jeff Nielsen, Senior Lecturer in Geography at the University of Sydney and Indonesian Coordinator of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. We'll throw out the link to Jeff's article, The State and Food Security Discourses of Indonesia Feeding the Bangsa, which is co-authored with Josephine Wright, on the blog page associated with this podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not look up Jeff's previous Talkie Indonesia episode in January last year on Alfred Wallace and Sustainable Livelihoods. You'll find it and the entire Talkie Indonesia archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, on iTunes, or via your favourite podcasting app. Talkie Indonesia returns on 12 October. Until then, this has been the Talkie Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.